This talk was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church, as a part of the 2020 Virtual Leadership Project. For more information on VLP and Campus Outreach Minneapolis, visit cominneapolis.org. All right. Good to see everyone out there. I feel like I need to say a quick shout out to the Myrtle Beach crew. Super jealous that I'm not out there with you guys. Gosh, I love that place. You guys are on the paver patio, loving life. Glad all the Zoomers are out there too. Good to see everybody. It's honestly amazing that this is the final week. It's crazy to think that, gosh, it's gone so fast already, but I guess it's the last week. Um, everything Brianna just shared is basically what I want to talk to you guys tonight about. Um, and I feel a lot of times like the testimonies are so good and powerful. It's like, they could just be standalone without the talk. But um, so tonight is the final rally and um, I wanna give just a quick recap of where we've been and then where we're gonna go tonight and then I'll pray and we'll dive in. So my name's Reed, if, if you guys don't remember me for the weeks and I had one week in there, MC got kicked off, but they couldn't fully get rid of me. So now here I am with you guys tonight. So good to see all those faces out there. Even little Eden's tuned in, I see. Hi, I don't know if she can hear me, but all right. So um, this summer, what we've covered so far, we covered um, Jesus as the fulfiller of all the promises in the Bible. We looked at Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus as the lamb, Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the king, the fulfillment of God with us. Um, and honestly, these are just like the topics we covered every week and studied every week in the Bible. So we did kind of a big picture overview of the Bible. So seeing Jesus in all of scripture, kind of those themes played out from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And those barely even scratch the surface. We could have spent, you could spend years on this topic of diving into seeing Jesus all throughout the Bible, but hopefully you guys have seen how amazing it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every single page in the Bible. Like it's crazy to think that these are true and it's all because of Jesus. So essentially tonight, what we want to try to do is in light of who Jesus is, what does that mean for us? Or um, because of the amazing final fulfillment we have in Jesus, what does that look for us right now? What does that mean for us today, tonight? Wherever you are, what does that mean for you? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let me pray in light of that, and then we'll dive in. God, it's crazy to think that um, this summer is winding down. And even as we've acknowledged, even a couple minutes ago, this, this summer looked different than we anticipated. But God, I pray that you would show up even tonight in a sweet and powerful way, that this summer would be more than just um, the theme talks, relationships that were built, time in the word, but it would bear fruit into the next semester and into the next 20 years of our life, that we would look back on this summer even though it's a weird summer, a lot of Zoom and other things that, um, that you worked and that you changed our hearts in some big ways that set a trajectory for the rest of our life. So God, would you work even now, we pray and ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. So if you have a, a Bible, I would invite you guys to turn to John 15. So we're going to spend um, a majority of our time in John 15. I am going to reference some other passages specifically in John, but um, we're going to spend a majority of our time in John 15, 1 through 11. Um, and as a, 
I guess as you guys are turning there, I know it's on the screen. Um, just a couple things that get you caught up to where we are in the context of the book of John. So basically everything after chapter 13 in the book of John is Jesus and his disciples. So from chapter 13 to 17, it's just Jesus and his disciples. And these are the final words he's giving the closest people in his life. So you can imagine chapters 13 through 17, just the weight it would carry with the people who heard these words. And this is what we, where we pick up in chapter 15, starting in verse 1. So I'll read 1 through 11, and then I'll give you a little bit of, of where we're going here. So, so John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as the Father has kept my commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So here, um, essentially, we get a metaphor running through this passage. And the idea is, is a garden. So you get this idea um, of Basically, you have three characters in the story. You have the vine, which is Jesus. You have the vine dresser, which is essentially the gardener. We don't really use the term vine dresser. Vines are kind of a weird idea to us, but think of a gardener and you have the vine, who's Jesus. You have the gardener, who's God. And then you have the branches, who are us. So we're going to take kind of all of those topics in that order and look at it as it plays out in this passage. So, so we'll start with the idea of the vine. So there's a lot that can be said in this passage about um, the vine, but we're going to just, I think I have five quick things to say about the vine. Um, and the first is this, that um, Jesus says right away in verse one, I am the true vine. So as Jesus says true vine, you have to be thinking like, well, one, like what in the world is he talking about a vine? Chances are he probably means some sort of like there probably be lots of grapevines. So grapes grow on vines. If you've been to orchards that also have like a winery or something, kind of a trendy thing in Minnesota, I feel like now almost every orchard you go to has a winery and there's these vines that grow grapes. And chances are this is what Jesus had pictured and even the disciples as they're thinking about this picture of him being the true vine. Um, so they probably were outside, probably could see a vine within like feet of where they're standing. So it probably made a lot more sense to them than it even makes to us, but you kind of get the idea. And in, in this, he, he qualifies himself as the vine by saying, I am the true vine. So um, Jesus is implying that there are other things that are going to vie for your time, vie for your attention, that go after essentially your heart. But I am the true vine. And we know that from a couple other places in John, I'll just quote him quick. I don't think I have a slide, but 
John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, this is Jesus, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus is the true vine, the only way. Or John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So there's no other way to find true joy and satisfaction and hope other than Jesus. So there's absolutely no other vine that we can be connected to. So when this uh, metaphor starts with Jesus as the true vine, this is very important for us to see. And as, um, as I was working through this text, I, I listened to a sermon that I, I feel like I need to give a shout out to this sermon. If you want to look at it later this week, I would um, encourage you to look at it. But Eric Mason is a pastor of Epiphany Church, um, I believe in, where do we say, Philadelphia? Um, but he, uh, he has a sermon based on John 15, and he hones in specifically on like verses 1 through 4. But, um, but he hits on kind of 1 through 8, and it's called When God Cuts You, which is kind of like an interesting name for a sermon. But if you're looking for a really good resource, and I'm going to use a couple of his clips. So if you like the clips, they're kind of a teaser for the rest of his sermon. But he really helped me, and, and it's specifically on this point. So Eric Mason, he talks about this idea of Jesus being the true vine. So check out this clip, and then we'll come back. I just love uh, how he says it. I feel like even just watching him interact with the text and have a towel, I'm kind of like, Dan, go get me a towel, man. Let's go. Like, um, but he's just so animated. But he talks about Jesus being the true vine. And everything he said is so true, um, that Jesus is the only way. So a couple more observations about Jesus as the vine. So in verses 3 and verse 7, we see this idea of clean attached to the word. So he says in um, verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. And then in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So um, chances are the disciples here, remember, this is just Jesus and his closest disciples. So when he says in verse 3, you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you, chances are they would actually just go back, well, for you, a couple pages in your Bible to chapter 13. But Jesus has just done this amazing thing in John 13. So Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. So um, chances are when he said, you're clean because the word I've spoken to you, this is exactly what Jesus was referencing when he said that. So this is the inter interaction in John 13, which this is a powerful picture of what Jesus does for the disciples here. And we're not going to interact with all of this text, but I just want you to see what he means by this idea of being clean. So look for that in this text as I read. So he's starting in verse 5. He says, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, why do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So again, chances are the disciples would have just gone back to this passage, which was only probably a day or two ago as Jesus is communicating these final words to his disciples. Um, and specifically, this interaction, he's cleaning their feet, but Peter's like, don't wash me. And Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. 
And then Peter's like, well, wash everything. Wash my head down to my toes. Like, I want to be clean to be with you. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. Like, that's why you bathe. I'm washing your feet as a symbol. But I am going to clean you. I am going to save you is what Jesus is saying here. So in verse 3, when he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you, he's pointing to this reality that I'm going to save you guys. I'm going to clean you. I'm going to justify you because of what I'm going to do for you. And he gave them a taste of that in chapter 13. But then that's what he's referencing here in John 15. So not only do we see Jesus as the true vine, we see him as the one who cleans us by the word. Um, But we see from verses four and five that fruit is not possible without Christ. So if you look at verses four and five with me, I think I have a slide here. Um, But fruit is not possible without Christ. So look at this. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I guess the first thing we need to see in this, or at least the first question we should ask is, what does Jesus mean by fruit? So if we're talking about fruit is impossible without Christ, what is Jesus referencing here when he talks about fruit? So again, you heard Eric Mason say this, and I was saying, chances are he means grapes, and the idea of vine comes from this vine growing with grapes at the end. So the fruit of a grapevine is grapes. The same way the fruit of an apple tree is apples or an orange tree is oranges or all the other fruit mentioned at the beginning. Um, The fruit of a Christian is the fruit of the Spirit. So when Jesus says fruit, he's talking, what is the fruit of the Christian? And the only way we can get Christian fruit is to be connected to Jesus as our vine, as our source. So what Jesus is saying here that apart from me, you can do nothing. Spiritual fruit, Christian fruit is not possible without Jesus. That's what he's saying here. So he says, I'm the true vine. You are clean because the word is spoken to me. And fruit is not possible without Christ. Um, And then a couple more quick observations and then we'll be done with the vine. But there's a lot on the vine. So I want to spend some time here. Um, Jesus is a loving vine. Jesus is a loving vine. So if you see in verse 9, as the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Like we could spend so much time just on this one verse, and I'm not going to do it justice in the next 30 seconds to a minute, but um, this is a pretty amazing verse to think about. Like we have a loving vine. Um, Jesus is a loving vine, a loving father to us. Um, as I was thinking about this point, um, I felt like I needed a little redemption for my first time with you guys. So I played a little clip, if you remember, of Eden, who was, um, she was singing, shake, 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 shake your booty. And it was really cute and kind of funny, but also like, why does she know that song? So after that point, I felt like I needed to start singing with her some songs that are a little bit better. And so we started singing just recently, Jesus Loves Me. Um, so you guys know the song. I'm not going to sing it, embarrass myself in front of you. If Eden was here, I'd do it with her. Um, but she, she's really cute right now. She's like mimicking the words and starting to get to the song. And at points in the day, she'll like, you know, you'll just hear her saying, or the Bible tells me so, or Jesus loves me, this I know. So um, it's, it's adorable. But those words are so simple in that song, and yet so profound, that Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And, and this is one of those verses we look at to see Jesus loves us. And he loves us because he loves us. It's not anything we do to merit that love, but he gives it freely, which is just incredible to think about. 
it's a it's an amazing picture of his love for us so not only is he the true vine not only does he clean us by the word not only is fruit not possible without christ but he's a loving vine and that changes how we think about the vine and finally the last observation about the vine again we could have said more about the vine is there's this idea of joy so in verse 11 he said these things i've spoken to you that my joy that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full so uh the, the first passage that came to mind when I was thinking about this, again, so many passages in the Bible that connect our joy in Jesus. But um, in Zephaniah 3.17, he talks about God exalting over you with loud singing. Like the idea of God singing over us, like having joy in us is, is a wild thought. Like that God sings over us, like rejoices over us, that he would have joy in us is pretty crazy to think about. Like a lot of times I don't think our picture of God is one who's singing over us. And here it says that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So not only is his joy in us, but also that our joy may be full. So I'm here with you guys tonight, but I actually recorded this talk a few days ago because Nikki's really pregnant and could be have our, our baby boy any single moment. In fact, I have my phone on just in case it happens right now and I have to leave. Um, but so our little boy, we, we're going to, I'm going to reveal the name just cause I can't help myself, but Asher's going to be born any day now, any moment. And the moment he's born, I'm going to be smiling from ear to ear, like just this incredible picture of my son who I've been waiting for him to come literally the last week. That's all we've done. We've like stayed at home. We've been kind of careful. We haven't really spent time with anyone. We're just waiting for his arrival. And when he comes, it's not that he's going to merit any joy or love necessarily. In fact, he's going to cry. He's going to sleep, eat, and poop. And that's about it. Um, and it's not going to change. Like, I'm going to be grinning from ear to ear. Like, I'm going to have so much joy because he's here. And again, this is the idea of the joy that we get here. And that's a picture, me as Asher's father, but of the father's love towards us. But he doesn't stop it there. It says, and that your joy may be full. So, that we may, um, again, this is kind of like the idea of fulfilled. We talked about the first week, but that we may be overflowing with joy, that we may be full because of the joy we get because of Jesus. So um, a couple passages that made me think of was, um, I don't think I have these. I'm just going to reference them really quick. I have a lot of scripture here and I want to move quickly, but um, there's the, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. It's just this incredible picture. This is what we get with Jesus. Like he's worth everything that in our joy, we'd want to sell everything we have for him because he's that valuable for us. Um, and then Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the picture of Jesus as the vine. He's joyful. There's joy to be had in him. That's where we look to as our source of hope. The, the only way, the only vine, the one true vine, Jesus. So again, there's lots to be said here about the vine, but I'm hoping in some ways that point one, Jesus as the vine, um, as incredible as it is who Jesus is, hopefully this is what you've experienced all summer to see the fulfillment of Jesus all throughout the Bible. It's awesome picture of who he is. And so you, I still haven't answered the question, but what does that mean for us? Like, what do we do? I promise we're getting there. So point two, uh, 
This is God. So the gardener or vine dresser. So in, uh, again, in verse one, Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus himself is saying, God is the gardener or the vine dresser. I'm probably going to use those words interchangeably. So God is the gardener, vine dresser. Gardener makes a little bit more sense to me, even though I wouldn't say I'm uh, necessarily like a, a gardener. Although interesting fact about me, uh, when I was 15, one of my first jobs was I managed like a greenhouse. So one of those garden pop-up greenhouses that are like in the back of a grocery store parking lot. So I actually learned a lot about keeping plants alive and, and all these things. I learned about perennials, annuals, different names of plants, which if you talk to me now, I wouldn't be able to regurgitate a ton of that. But when I, when I thought about the gardener in the picture we get of God, so there are two main pictures we get of God as the gardener. The first is he takes away, and the second is this idea of pruning, which we'll, we'll get to in a second. So let's start with the gardener takes away. So in verse 2 and verse 6, it references God as the gardener who takes away. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then in verse 6, anyone who does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. The branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. So these are, uh, these are hard passages and ideas to understand. And actually, we're going to come back to this when we talk about branches. So for the time being, I'm going to kind of leave you with these two pictures here of the gardener that takes away. And we're going to come back to the God that takes away in a second. But we're going to spend a majority of the second point as God pruning. And what does that look like that God prunes us? So in verse 2, he says, Every branch does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So one of the things I learned being 15 years old and running this greenhouse literally by myself, like I was there, it was, well, it was me and my brother. So when I wasn't working, he was working and vice versa. But essentially, uh, one of the main things we did every day when we got there was we did cleaning is what it was called. But essentially it was pruning. We, we went around to all the flowers, geraniums specifically, but a lot of the flowers and we would pluck the dead or dying things off the plant in order that it may bear more fruit and that the health of the plant could go to other areas to produce more fruit. So, um, so this idea of pruning is kind of this weird idea. Um, and at first, when you think about uh, pruning, kind of the first idea is pruning is painful. Like the idea of a plant, like something being plucked off or even the idea of us as a branch that's going to be pruned, um, it doesn't sound like this encouraging thought. And uh, uh, kind of an interesting idea, I have a, a John Piper quote here to help us understand this idea, but actually the word for pruning and the word for clean in verse three, I, I didn't know this, by the way, I'm not like a Bible expert or anything like that, but um, the idea of um, pruning in verse two and cleaning in, or clean in verse three is actually like almost the same word in Greek. And John Piper says this, he says, in other words, it is more plain in the Greek that Jesus is making a play on words. The father prunes, that is cleanses, the branch to make them more suitable for fruit bearing. But keep in mind, you're already cleansed. You're already pruned. You're already suitable, fitted. So the idea here is, in one sense, we're already made clean. We're already justified because of what Jesus has done for us. And at the same time, God is still working in us to make us more in the image of Jesus, to make him more like him. So 
the idea of pruning or more cleaning is making us more into the image of Jesus. But in one sense, verse three, which we already looked at, Jesus has already made us clean. So it's, it's again, this would make more sense if we understood Greek a little bit more. Um, if, if Henrik was up here with me, he's our resident staff Greek expert, but we give him a hard time about that, but you should ask him about it sometime. Uh, but we, he, you could see this more clearly in the Bible, but you could almost interchange pruning in verse two and three or cleaning in two and three. Um, so it's weird, this idea that God cleans us, even though we're already clean or prunes us, even though we're already pruned. And the idea is, even though we're already clean in a final sense or in a justified sense because of what Jesus did for us, he's still conforming us to the image of his son, which is this crazy idea. And again, still the idea of pruning doesn't sound like fun. Like the idea of cutting away something for a greater sense of health. When you think about yourself, like God's pruning you to have you be more healthy doesn't uh, sound good. So one, one thought I had or trying to like, make this land a little bit more was um, any little kid in even Eden right now, she has a pacifier, right? Um, and Eden goes to her pacifier for comfort. So primarily we only let her use it when she's sleeping or napping, but there's points where right now we're putting her in timeout and we put her in a crib and she goes to her pacifier and it helps calm her down. She goes to it for comfort. Now, um, Nikki and I were actually having a conversation about pacifiers. It's kind of funny. This is parent talk. This is what happens. But uh, Nikki was saying that her parents, to wean her off the pacifier, they started cutting back the pacifier. So essentially, she didn't want it anymore because there was nothing to suck, nothing to comfort her. And the same is true for you. Like, all of us probably have things we go to that would be essentially our, our, our extra spiritual pacifier that we go to for comfort or hope other than Christ. And God is cutting that from us. He's pruning that from our life that we may bear more fruit, that we may trust him more, lean into him more. And this is the idea of pruning. Another idea with the idea of pruning, pruning is productive. So um, again, in the moment, it doesn't seem productive to like tear off a piece of a plant. In fact, sometimes it feels like you're going backwards. But if you look at the flow of the text, I should have put a slide for this and I didn't, I'm really sorry. But um, this, the text starts with some fruit early on in the passage, in verse 2, I believe. And then it goes to more fruit. And by the end of the passage, he talks about having much fruit. So it goes from some to more to much. So there's a progression of fruit. But when the pruning process is happening, when there's just some fruit and you're taking it, it feels not only painful, but it feels um, counterintuitive. Like, God, why are you taking this? Why am I actually moving backwards? Like, why is the plant actually being cut when we want it to grow? And that's exactly what the plant needs. Um, so there's this idea of a slingshot, right? So everyone knows of the slingshot, you pull it back to release it, to move forward. And um, with a slingshot, um, when you pull it back, it could be easy to think, why am I moving backwards? Like, God, what are you doing? Like, why are you taking this from me? Like, that's something I really want. That's a relationship I really loved. Like, why are you taking this from my life? And in the same way, God's pulling it back like a slingshot to propel you forward so that you bear more fruit. So even though the pruning process is painful, it's actually really productive. Like, what God's doing in the pruning process is preparing you to bear fruit. Um, and one, like, really practical story to try to even get it one step further um, when I was about three years on staff, um, 
right around there. Nikki and I were asked to launch to a new campus. And as you're on staff with Campus Outreach, that's like a really exciting thing to like go to a new campus, to blaze a trail, to have the gospel go where it's never been as far as campus outreach and to reach unreached students. It's like, this is the stuff we eat and breathe when we talk about vision and college ministry and the gospel going forward. And Nikki and I felt, felt an overwhelming sense that we shouldn't go. And this was incredibly hard for us because we get this amazing opportunity or promotion in front of us. And we essentially both said, no, we said, actually, we feel like we need to focus on our marriage. Like we don't feel like we should go. Like we're not in a place of health. This wouldn't be a good thing for us. And in that moment, it truly felt like the slingshot analogy, but we're moving backwards. Like we're getting this opportunity to move forward and advance in our career. And it actually felt like the opposite was happening. Like we're almost being grounded and we're going to start going to counseling and we're not going to do the same things we were doing on the campus. And it's like, God, what are you doing? But in that moment, God was preparing us for something else. And I truly think that had Nikki and I not had that season of pruning in our marriage, we wouldn't be the directors of Campus Outreach Minneapolis. Like we wouldn't be fit for the role that we had us. And what God was doing in that season was actually preparing us to bear more fruit in our time with Campus Outreach and on staff with Campus Outreach. So hopefully that helps a little bit understanding this idea of pruning. And that's just one example. I could tell you probably a hundred examples in my life where in the moment it felt like, God, you're actually holding me back. Like you're actually taking something from me and this doesn't feel good. But on the other side, it's clear what God was doing. And uh, I have a, I believe I have another, do I have another clip here? Um, so I have another clip. Sorry, I lost my place in my, my notes here, but I have a second clip by Eric Mason and he's talking about this idea of pruning. So just listen to him. He goes on on a rant there and it's actually incredible. So again, I'd encourage you to, to watch the sermon in more depth, but I just loved how you slam in the, the podium, podium or whatever you say. Um, but this idea of pruning is again, counterintuitive to us, but God's doing it that we may bear more fruit. So the primary thing God does is prunes us. And again, we're going to look at the second thing he does here when we talk about branches, but I still haven't talked about, so we've looked at what Jesus does as the vine. We looked at God but we still haven't gotten to, what about us? Like the whole point of this talk is what do we do now? What about us? And that's where we get to the branches. So we are the branches. So a couple, um, a couple quick observations about the branches and one quick tangent, and then I'm going to land the plane, I promise. Uh, so there's not abiding branches in abiding branches. So in this passage, there are two types of branches. And this is actually what I was referring to with God taking away. Um, so it talks about God taking away in verse two. And then I think again in verse six or seven, the idea of these branches being gathered and burned. So what does God mean? Essentially, how can God say that we are in Christ and we're taken away if we don't bear fruit and then we're going to be burned? Like, what is he saying here? So the question actually just chasing a quick rabbit trail, because I think it's important to this text, but essentially, can you lose your salvation? Like, can you be in Christ and then not be in Christ. Because it seems like that's potentially what he's saying in verse 2. And I actually think it's, uh, it's really clear from the Gospel of John and all throughout the Bible that the answer to that question is no. So then the question is, what does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean when he says that you can be in me and then cut off from me and perish and be burned? Um, so I want to just give you a quick evidence for why I think this. And then we're going to move on. You might have more questions after this. I'm just trying to give you a quick 
snapshot of why I think this is true. And then I actually want to get to the main point of the text and what it means for us. So essentially all throughout the Gospel of John, we see a couple things when it comes to non-abiding branches. There are people who think they're believers, but not trusting Jesus. And there are people who think they're disciples of Jesus, but not true disciples. And I just want to show that real quick. I have a slide up. This is from John chapter 2. It says, when, his, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus did not entrust himself to him because he knew all people. So here we see the people believed in Jesus, but why are they believing Jesus? It says they saw the signs he was doing. So Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people. So these people thought they were believing in Jesus, but they actually weren't trusting in him. So people that thought they were believing, thought they were in Jesus, but actually weren't trusting in him. So I want you to see this from chapter two. And then the disciples, so in John chapter six, Jesus starts out with this amazing crowd. And by the end of his sermon in John chapter six, literally this is like the biggest fail of any pastor ever. Jesus is left just with his immediate 12 disciples. And Jesus, um, this is, well, I guess I'll just read it. John 6, 66 says, after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And this is where Jesus said, are you guys going to walk away too? He turns to his 12. Are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. But here it says, many of his disciples no longer walked with him. What does that mean? What do we think of that? The idea is there were disciples that weren't truly trusting in Jesus weren't truly following Jesus. And I think the same is true here. Um, I think I have a, a, a quote here, something that makes more sense here. Um, so the, the same is true when Jesus says, uh, they are in me, but the reality is they're not truly in me. So when Jesus says this in verse two, when he says in me, he's pointing to the people who think they're in him, not the people who are truly in him if that makes sense. So that's my really quick argument for the branches that aren't abiding, which I'm saying are not believers. So it's not possible to lose your salvation. This is a really quick explanation. But um, so the, the sad reality of this point, though, is that being on staff at Camp Sarich as long as I have, this is still true to this day. I know of students and stories of people who would have had a really positive experience with our ministry in college, would have been leaders in our ministry and college and today would say they're not walking with the Lord. That they themselves would say today they weren't trusting in Jesus. And it's incredibly sad to think about. Um, and so this is still true today. There are still people who claim to be followers of Jesus that aren't truly following him. And still people say that they're believing in Jesus and don't believe in him. But now let's get to the main point of the text. So the believing branches, what are we supposed to do? And this is where I really want to spend some time and land the plan. But over and over again in this text, and in fact, at the very beginning, hopefully you saw this, I believe eight or nine times in these 10 verses, Jesus talks about this idea of abiding. So what does it mean to abide? Like that's the big question of this text. If we are the branches, if God's the gardener and Jesus is the vine, what does it mean that we are a branch and we're supposed to abide? What does that mean? Um, so again, just a little bit more zooming out of the gospel of John. The whole book of John is written so that we may believe. So the whole premise of John is written so that we may believe. And in John chapter one, he says, anyone who comes to me who believes in my name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Um, so now again, we pick it up in chapter 15 and he's talking about abide, 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 abide. So what does abiding mean? John Piper says it this way. Believing is an attachment to, a coming to Jesus and a receiving from Jesus. It's a trusting in Jesus, remaining in fellowship with Jesus, connecting to Jesus. So that, uh, so all that God is for us in him is like, is flowing like a life-giving sap into our lives. That's number one. Abiding is believing, trusting, savoring, resting, and receiving. And I just loved how he put it because it's all those things. Abiding is believing, trusting, savoring, resting, and receiving. And as a staff, and as we think about uh, what we want for you guys, we want fruit that abides. We want you guys to, to trust in Jesus and remain, to rest, to believe, to have hope, to rest in this idea of who Jesus is. So I love the way John Piper put it in that quote. Um, so in light of the amazing thing of who Jesus is, what do we actually do or what does that mean? Eric Mason says it this way, which again, I'm really just quoting John Piper and Eric Mason. I'm sorry if that bothers you, but they're unreal. And Eric Mason says this, and I thought this is awesome. He says, we need the gospel. We need it more than books, more than studies, more than groups. We need the life-giving, identity-establishing, purpose-defining gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the idea of abiding is this idea that we need the gospel, that we need Jesus more than anything. In fact, there's no other way to do it. So when Jesus talks about the reality of abiding, this is what he means. There is nothing else. We need this. Like the air we breathe, we need Jesus. As branches, there's no other way to live spiritually apart from Jesus. And that's what abiding means. So in a few minutes, I'm going to give you guys four discussion questions. I'll read them to you right now, but you're going to get a slide in a minute about them. But I want you guys to think about in a couple minutes, what are the things in your life that push you to the vine? What are things in your life that push you to Jesus? Or the second question is, what are things that in your life that stir your affections for Jesus? So Matt Chandler talks about things that stir your joy for Jesus. What are those things? And number three is, what are false vines or other things other than Jesus you give attention to or want to be connected to? What are the false vines you're prone to wander to other than Jesus? And number four, what are the ways that God's pruning you now or has pruned you in the past few years? So maybe you're, you're in a season in your life, what are those things? What are the things God's taking from you that right now maybe feel painful, but it's, um, but it's what God wants that you may bear more fruit? Um, so when I think really practically about what it means to abide as a Christian, I think these elements should be a part of your life. Um, the first is the word of God. You should find some way to have a regular intake of God's word. Um, if the idea this summer that we saw Jesus is in every page of the Bible, every book of the Bible whispers the name of Jesus, culminating with Jesus in the Gospels, and then after the Gospels points back to Jesus, we, and we want to know this person named Jesus, we should be in our Bibles to be transformed by his word, to know Jesus, to get to know him. We need a steady diet of his word to see that this is a person. This, when we come to this book, it's a living book about a person, namely Jesus. The second thing is we need people in our life. And when I say people in our life, we need a community in our life or a circle of people in our life that know us as best as anyone can this side of heaven. Like people that know the things we struggle with, that know the things, the lies we're prone to believe, that know when to tell us hard things that we need to hear, that know when to say no, even when we want to yes. 
that know when to sit down and pray with us and remind us of truth, that can point us back to Jesus when we're not seeing things clearly. We need not only God's word, but other people that can help us when we're not seeing and thinking straight. And then finally, again, this is the bare minimum. Like this is what it means to abide bare minimum as a Christian. Number three, we need the church. And when I say the church, this is what I mean. I don't mean you just need a place to go to on Sunday to worship, to sing, to pray, to, to hear God's word. But you need a place where you can use your gifts. Primarily the church is for the body of Christ to come together to use their gifts to edify and bless each other. So you need a church as a place you can serve, as a place you can understand how God's wired you and give your gifts back to the body of believers. Because that's how God's people work together, big picture, is the church. So bare minimum, what it means to, to, again, to abide is to have the word of God, have people in your life, and have a church. Um, and at this point, if you're like, gosh, it seems like a plug kind of for Campus Outreach. It is. Like, we would love for you guys to be a part of Campus Outreach coming off of this summer. And I know every one of you are at a different place. Every one of you came into the summer at a different place. And I would say, even if it's not Campus Outreach, we want those things for you. We, we understand that Bethlehem isn't a perfect fit for everyone. And Campus Outreach isn't a perfect fit for everyone. But find those things, even if it's not with Campus Outreach and not with Bethlehem. We want you guys to abide. So hear that. Um, and I want to close our time together with a, an analogy that Paul Tripp talks about. So, you know, it's, it's actually really interesting when we look at this passage and we think about all the things that Jesus does for us, all the things that God does for us, and we're just called to abide, which essentially is to remain, to trust, to hope, um, to rest. There, there really isn't like an active command to like, now go do these 10 things. Um, and Paul David Tripp says it this way. He gives a, a parable about a tree. And he says, if a tree produces bad apples year after year, there is something drastically wrong with its system down to its very roots. I won't solve the problem by stapling new apples onto the branches. They will also rot because they're not attached to the life-giving root system. And next spring, I will have the same problem again. I will not see a new crop of healthy apples because my solution has not gone to the heart of the problem. If the tree's roots remain unchanged, it will never produce good apples. So what Paul Tripp's getting at is it's not possible to just staple fruit to your life. So it's not possible to just focus on external behavior. That's not going to produce real lasting change. What we see when Paul Tripp talks about this, that the root system is connected to our heart. The only way true change happens is by our hearts being transformed by the work of Jesus into it, in us. And that's what produces the fruit. In one sense, this idea of abiding is very passive. Like we stay dialed into the vine and growth happens. We pursue Jesus and it happens. Like you don't look at an apple tree and think, oh man, I, when am I going to go out there today and start stapling apples to my apple tree? That's not how it works. But sometimes with the Christian life, we think what I need to do is pray more. What I need to do is open up my Bible more. What I need to do is get this community in my life more, which those are all things I just said, and those are good things. But our focus should be the root. The focus has to be our heart. It's the only way true change and transformation happens. So actually what I'm saying as I'm landing the plane on this talk is that uh, the only way transformation happens is by tr us trusting Jesus. So I hope this summer, what you guys have actually experienced is a taste of an increased joy of who Jesus is 
and that that will actually transform you for the next 20 years of your life. We don't want you guys to just have an incredible six week, seven week experience with Campus Outreach, but we want your lives to be transformed for the rest of your life. And what it means to abide is to look to Jesus, is to go to him because we need him. So we don't just do the three things that I said, these are the essential things to abide. We do it because our hearts need to be transformed by Jesus and there is no other way. We don't start with our behavior to work backwards to our heart. We start with our heart that it would overflow into our behavior, which is the fruit of the spirit, which is the point of John 15, which is the point of fruit that abides, which is what we want for you, which is what I want for me. We want this in your life that we would abide and trust and rest and hope in Jesus. So I would just tell you guys, run to the vine. Like what's the therefore for us this summer? Run to Jesus because we need him. And I would also say if there are some of you who maybe some of these realities are new, or maybe you realize, I don't know, I wonder if I'm actually a disciple who would say I'm like trusting him, but I actually don't know if I'm trusting him. Trust in him today. Believe in him now. Jesus says all who believe in him, who call on him have the right to become children of God. And I would say believe, hope, and trust in him now. Rest now. Again, this is where true joy and happiness are. And this is what we want for you guys. So let me pray, and then I'll give you time to answer those questions. God, this is an incredible passage. And it's easy to become familiar with the idea of a vine and fruit. And in one sense, this is incredibly simple, that we stay connected to the vine and fruit happens. And in another sense, it's unbelievably powerful how you work, that you want more fruit in our lives, that you want us to conform more in the image of your son, that you want our lives to be transformed and you do the work. You've already cleaned us and you're cleaning us. That's what this passage says. You've already cleaned us in a final sense and you want to make us cleaner into the image of your son. And that's what happens as the Christian abides in Jesus. As we connect to the vine, that's what you do. And at the same time, you take things from us, things that we're prone to trust in other than you, things that we're prone to look to other than you, things in our life that we think are good, but we don't know what's actually good. And you take them from us that we may need you more and bear more fruit. So God, I pray that this summer would be bigger than just a to-do list or a Bible study plan coming off this summer, but would you help our hearts abide? We want fruit that abides. We want our hearts to be in you. We want to see more of Jesus. Thank you for listening to God, this pray message that that in the happens. 2020 Virtual Leadership so God, would you work that that would continue, that this summer would really be a diving board for the rest of our life, a foundation that continues please feel free to, grow, to share this message with others, but please do not charge for, edit, or alter the message Amen. in any way without the written permission of Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.